Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Maya Rodale about An Heiress to Remember, the third book in her Gilded Age Girls Club series. Maya Rodale is something of a publishing phenomenon, with almost 20 novels to her credit, as well as two nonfiction books and various novellas and contributions to anthologies. The Gilded Age Girls Club focuses on late 19th century New York City, a time when women's suffrage was becoming a burning issue, robber barons were amassing their fortunes, and educational work opportunities for women were limited, even though change was in the air. In this third novel, we meet the heroine, Beatrice Goodwin, as she faces a moment of decision. New York City, 1879. 1 West 34th Street. The Duke was at the door. His Grace, the Duke of Montrose, had come calling at the Goodwin residence, all the way from the old England, on the hunt for an heiress to marry, as dukes were wont to do these days. But young Beatrice Goodwin only had eyes for the young handsome boy who had climbed into her bedroom window. By any definition, West Dalton was a nobody. He also happened to be the somebody she adored most in the world for many reasons, though one in particular claimed her attention now. West Dalton knew how to kiss a girl. He'd been in her room less than a minute before their arms were around each other, mouths colliding, young love seizing the moment. You have to go, she murmured. I know, he said, mumbled, really. Talking and kissing were not tremendously compatible. Kissing won out. Arms and hearts entwined, soft breaths, the sweetest taste. I have to go, he murmured. I know, she mumbled. And now, please join me in welcoming Maya Rodale. Hi, Maya. I'm looking forward to talking with you today. Hi. Happy to chat with you. I counted five series on your website in addition to anthologies, novellas, and other works. Uh, that's a lot of output. How did you uh, begin writing fiction? Thank you. Um, I began writing fiction when I was in college. I thought those classes would have easier homework because you could just make stuff up. Um and I really fell in love with the process of writing and crafting a story, and the homework was not easy. I started writing novels shortly after college because I loved um, reading romance novels, but I read them so quickly. So I thought writing them was a way to stay in the world longer, and I loved writing. So I, being so young, I didn't know any better, and I just went for it. And how have you managed to produce so many books? Do you sleep? I do sleep, um, but I get up at 5 a.m. So that has been my secret for most of my career. I've gotten up at 5 a.m. to get work done before I go to my day job or whatever um, gig I have going on. And since I've been able to write full-time, which has been the past few years, I write full-time, so that's how I do it. Um, it is my day job, and you, you just 
sit down and write. And it's amazing what you can accomplish when you do that. I have to say I'm jealous. I would love to write full time. (laughs) It's so much fun. Um, One thing I noticed on your site is that you also have a nonfiction book about romances called Dangerous Books for Girls. Uh, Was that your dissertation? I remember you said you wrote a dissertation on romance novels. Yeah, Dangerous Books for Girls began as my master's thesis in um, grad school because I kept confronting this question of how and why do we know to mock romance novels, especially among people who've never read them, particularly among people who have never read them. So that used to be me. I laugh when my mom first suggested I read them because I was like, oh, no, I'm better than that, which, of course, I'm not and no one is. But I started doing a lot of research into how that attitude arose and why it persists. And Dangerous Books for Girls is not my master's thesis anymore. It is um, the updated, expanded attempt to answer that question. And in a nutshell, I think Romance novels portray women triumphing in a world that doesn't want women to triumph. And I would also include people of color and those identifying as LGBTQ in that as well. And because these portrayals of these people finding success and love and happiness, um, that's threatening to the status quo. And so one of the best ways to stifle those ideas is to mock them, scorn them, laugh at them, and generally make it inaccessible for people to have access to those stories that tell them they're worth it. That's a really interesting point, and you can definitely see it in your Gilded Age Girls Club series. How did you apply it in that in those books? That's, uh, that's one of the things I love about romance, right, is you take these like really big ideas about how the world works and then you think how do I put this in a page turning love story that will end well so and that's the challenge that all romance novelists are embarking on with their books so in the Gilded Age Girls Club series I've constructed it to really show women coming together to help each other triumph in fact a lot of my novels hinge around female friendship and female women supporting women. Um, In this series in particular, the heroines are reclaiming the power of traditional female things that we often scoff at. The Duchess by Design is a story about a seamstress who puts pockets in dresses. And it talks about how the pockets and dresses are so revolutionary and empowering to women. Uh, The second book in the series, Some Like It's Scandalous, is about the invention of lipsticks and cosmetics and how those industries were pioneered by women and have provided a lot of um, success for women. And then the third book uh, in Eris to Remember is all about shopping and how shopping has, especially in the Gilded Age, got women out of the house. It got them working and networking with other women. It gave them an extra space in the world to exist beyond the home. So I really explore all these things in a love story. And above all, I like to write these unapologetically ambitious heroines who find love and success because of those qualities, not in spite of them. 
let's talk about these heroines one at a time. Um, the first book is, as you mentioned, is Duchess by Design. And one of the things that's interesting there is that although there is a duke in the book, the heroine is not noble or wealthy uh, when she starts. Tell us about her. I'm not sure whether you say her name is Adeline or Adeline, but tell us about her. Adeline. Sure. So Adeline is a broke seamstress just trying to make it in the world. And she has ambitions to have her own dressmaking establishment. And her hero is a broke duke who needs to marry an heiress to save his family's estate. And that was a thing that happened all the time in the Gilded Age where these aristocratic peers from England needed money and American heiresses were the only way they could really get it. Uh, so I took that and used that. Um, the thing that comes between Adeline and her Duke is money, right? So he needs money and she doesn't have any to give them. And so that's the obstacle preventing them. But what I really wanted to ask with this book is, is the lack of money the obstacle or is it our attitude toward legacy and purpose and what we need um, to survive and be happy? So their relationship is really, they struggle with um, societal rules and expectations for what their roles are and they really break through them, which I love. And she is in some ways the more determined of the two, I think. Um, Tell us a little bit about them as characters and then we'll move on to book two. So Adeline has nothing to lose, right? Um, And she has everything to gain. But once she starts gaining success because of um, the support of the Gilded Age Girls Club who fund her store, um, they're they're like her venture capital firm. Um, and once she's employing all these women, she realizes a lot of people are riding on her. So she, a lot of women are counting on her to succeed and do the right thing. And she cannot afford this entanglement with the Duke who will never marry her. Um, nothing serious. So nothing serious can come of it. She, she, kind of doesn't even want to get married. Um, so it's a really interesting dynamic. What do you do with a heroine who doesn't want to marry a Duke? What do you do with um, a heroine who's very aware that she needs to support other women um, in order for her to succeed? So um, I really wanted to find the ways around that, that her and this guy can be together. And what I love about it is she really challenges Kingston, the Duke's perspective on the status quo and challenges him to question it and to find another way and rise above and not perpetuate it. And so that's their happy ever after. (laughs) Now, in Some Like It Scandalous, Daisy Swan and Theodore Prescott III, which is a fabulous name, um, better known as Theo, (laughs) face a very different situation. Who are they and what are their issues? So Daisy and Theo uh, both have money. They're both Manhattan high society and they kind of grew up together and they've hated each other since they were teenagers. And Theo is this beautiful golden boy and Daisy is just not, she's not pretty. She's a wallflower. She's a blue stocking. She is, she loves chemistry. Um, so they have gone very separate ways as much as they can in their Manhattan world, but their parents conspire to get them engaged for reasons. Um, you can just read those in the book. 
And Daisy and Theo end up agreeing to this engagement as a sort of sham engagement to buy themselves time to figure out a way out because Theo's going to be cut off from his family money. Daisy is going to need to support herself if she doesn't get married. And again, the theme of love and money comes up in this series a lot. So, but Daisy's passion is inventing cosmetics. So she brings her chemistry background to that. She invents them and she tries to make a business of it. And it turns out she actually needs Theo to do that. Um, So he's always been a pretty boy with no real focus, but he discovers he has a knack for advertising and marketing and the spectacle and the seduction of retail and commerce. So he kind of, she invents the modern cosmetics industry and he kind of invents the modern advertising industry. And together they find this purpose and they find success. And in the process of that, they fall in love. And although there is some scandal associated with Adeline, um, having her own dress shop, the, which, the title here is Some Like It Scandalous actually refers to something else, not not a society scandal. Um, I don't know if, how much you want to reveal, but could you at least give us a hint as to what that's about? There are lots of scandals in Some Like It Scandalous. One of the big ones is just the fact that at the time, and towards the end of um, the 1800s, women, respectable women could not wear makeup and count on remaining respectable. So whether it was lipstick or blush, you weren't, it was a scandal to paint your face. And it suggests, you know, that you're not content with your God-given life and you can do something about it. Um, So I think makeup really speaks to female agency in a very provocative way. So there's that one scandal. There's Daisy uh, refusing a respectable marriage. There's Daisy stepping out wearing makeup. There's a scandal looming in her family's background that threatens to derail everything she's worked for. Um, So there are many, many layers of scandal. But the other fun thing is the way Daisy and Theo learn to use scandal to their benefit as well. Okay, <laughs> we'll leave it there. That's good. <laughs> You're right. There was there was more scandal there than I had really given the book credit for. But um, I mean, it's, it, these are really fun reads. I should mention that, that this is just a pleasure. So that brings us to Beatrice and an heiress to remember. We made her in 1879, but the story really begins 16 years later in 1895, and. Beatrice has behaved scandalously by the standards of her day by 1895. So where is she in her life at the beginning of chapter one? We need to talk about where she was in 1879 um, before we talk about where she is in 1895. So in the the prologue, she is a young girl who is um, a young heiress who's facing enormous pressure to jilt the boy she loves and marry the duke she doesn't love. And that marriage doesn't work out. And then that brings us to 1895. So she's about 30, mid-30s. She is divorced, scandal. Um, And she's back in town in New York City and determined to seize control of her family business, which is a department store, and make it a success. So she's, um, she's one of those new money heiresses, and her parents have, like, 
worked her worked for nothing, um, and they want her to be respectable. And they have all the money in the world, but what they don't have is like respectability and um, the polish that like an aristocratic title will give them. So that's why she's kind of pressured to marry this duke. How would you describe her as a personality? She is a woman who has this spark of ambition and isn't afraid to speak her mind. And through the process of a really demoralizing marriage, uh, starts to lose that. And it's, she snatches herself back from, you know, being totally smothered out, um, and gets this divorce and gets herself back to New York. And when the story begins, she is now unapologetic. Uh, she's going to say what she thinks. She is not afraid of causing a scandal because she's divorced a Duke. Like what else can she do? Right. Um, so she's really ambitious. She is fearless. She really feels she has nothing to lose and she's not afraid to speak her mind. So she's a tremendously fun character to write and to read, I think. And what about the Duke? I mean, what went wrong there? Um, why was it so socially soul destroying her marriage? So I think of the Duke, this particular Duke, as just your typical overbearing patriarchal dude, um, which is kind of, you know, abusive toward women, um, particularly his wife. She has no agency in the marriage. She's she has nothing to do um, but try to give him an heir. It's uh, it's not an okay situation that she was in and being in this loveless marriage if you think about the the power imbalance i mean i guess he feels that he's you know put the cloak of his respectability over her but in effect you know her parents have bought and paid for him (laughs) so you would think he might be a little bit more i don't know uh appreciative (laughs) right but you know when does the world tell any of these men that they are beholden to other people, right? Um, they think it's just owed to them. And that living with that in such close proximity and being dependent on that can be really demoralizing and hard. And so I wanted to write the story of a woman who said no to that and got away from it. Yes, I, I really appreciate um, what Beatrice went through. I mean, I suppose the Duke may also have been resentful. That brings me to Wes Dalton. Um, he's introduced in the passage that I read as a nobody who can kiss Beatrice in just the way she likes, but that's certainly not all he is. Um, tell us about him. So Wes is um, a poor nobody who knows how to kiss a girl. Uh, he works for Beatrice's father, and that's how they know each other. And when she marries the Duke, Wes is out of a uh, out of a job, and he's uh, he's lost the woman he loves. So in the manner of romance heroes everywhere, he swears revenge. And his is a story of, um, you know, he really works his way up. And um, in fact, I don't know if this is a spoiler or not, but her parents pay him to disappear and get out of the picture. They want no temptation. So he takes that money and he uses it to launch his own business. And his, and he's successful, and he parlays it into a bigger and bigger and bigger in store. And 
soon enough, he has a bigger and better department store across the street from the Goodwin store, Beatrice's family store. And his plan, his revenge, is that he's going to have this bigger, better, more successful store across the street. He will bankrupt the other store, Goodwin's, and buy it for pennies and then destroy it. And that is all he wants in life um, until Beatrice comes back and says, no, I won't let you do that. And then that's pretty much what keeps him apart for most of the book. Um, He's got this huge chip on his shoulder and she's getting in his way. Right. And I would also say, like, what really keeps them apart is this belief that, you know, the other must lose for one of them to win. And I, I really wanted to challenge their thinking on that. And it's, it's hard to sustain a book where they're at odds um, constantly over something as frankly ridiculous as his revenge plan. Um, And so as Beatrice and Wes come back into contact, they're, you know, they used to be in love. They had some amazing chemistry and that comes roaring back. So I set them up in this rivals by day, lovers by night situation. And what happens is as they, that physical intimacy leads to more emotional intimacy, they begin to see that, you know, when they're fighting, they're both losing. One of the interesting elements of this story as I think about it, is, you know, we're in an age now where malls are closing all over America, right? Everything is moving online and to Amazon. And it's hard to remember the effects of the department store in early 20th century New York. Could you talk about that a little bit, what they've got going on there, what it meant to women um, who were most of their customers? Yeah, and I think that's a great question because the mall of today is not the mall of the Gilded Age. Excuse me. Um, These Gilded Age department stores were massive and they weren't just selling stuff, but experiences. Um, There were art galleries within them. There were exhibits. They provided childcare there was a post office. You could go out to lunch. It was it was more than, you know, you run into Target, you get your stuff and you get out of there. But you went to a Gilded Age department store to, like, spend the day with your friends. And the department store in this time was kind of the only respectable place for a woman outside of the house, except maybe church. Um, where she could go and be not at home, be out in the world, engage with other people, engage with other women um, in a way that wasn't going to ruin her reputation. And so the Ladies Mile in New York was where a lot of these stores were clustered. And that was the first area where women could walk around unchaperoned without ruining their reputations. Um, The stores then, once they got in there, they could safely spend the day and Um, and then you also provided a lot of work for shop girls. So now they are empowered. There's an alternative to getting married to the next farmer over. They can come to the big city and have an independent life. Um, they were terribly paid and that's a whole 
other problem, but it was, it was a, a foothold. Um, so these department stores were incredibly empowering um, to women in these ways. And you can also argue the flip side of they really had to stoke this um, consumerism in women in particular. And this idea that, you know, you needed to own and acquire more to be happy and satisfied. And that is a, a troubling, a troubling tension with these stores. So they're not all good and perfect, um, but they were enormously influential in women's lives. So one of the things I'm hearing as you're talking is that although these are romances, and so the the primary focus of each book is is a love story, there's actually a lot going on behind the scenes. Um, and you haven't always written about the Gilded Age. How do you have to do research on dressmaking and department stores and cosmetics? And I mean, Daisy is a student at Barnard, or she's working in a lab at Barnard and stuff like that. How do you approach that part of the uh, novel writing project? Uh, well, thank you. Yeah, it takes an enormous amount of research, and especially with historical romance. And, you know, I'm not alone in doing a massive amount of research and thought work before I set up these stories. And it was a really daunting task for me to switch from writing, you know, 15 Regency era novels and starting in an entirely new time period, an entirely new continent. And so I just started reading. Um, you find one book and that leads to another and another. And it's this fun, I think, process where you do enough research to get the idea for the story and the and then you realize what you don't know to flush out that story. So it sends you down this rabbit hole. Um, one of the best things I did is in researching this series is I went to the Tenement Museum on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And I'm so thrilled that I live in New York City and this is an option for me. So in one afternoon, I learned an enormous amount about um, Adeline's life what her life would have been like, what house she would have lived, what social structures, um, what the professional options were like for those living in the sweatshops and um, sewing. So there you go, an hour and a half, I've learned a tremendous amount. And then that gift shop was a treasure because they just lay out all these amazing history books with things I didn't know I needed to read about. Um, and a lot of them are very try like people's dissertations, but loaded with knowledge. And so that's fun to me. All of that was very fun to me. Um, and so, yeah, one thing leads to another and then eventually kind of know enough to start writing and you can fill in the gaps as you go. And are there special things that you have to think about as a romance novelist because of the conventions of the genre? Absolutely. And I do get in trouble with my editor in this series where she's like, remember you're writing a romance. Um, so you have to make sure that the hero and heroine and that love story is always front and center because as much as readers come to historical romance because of the history, because they want to learn this history that is not taught in schools or elsewhere, um, 
you definitely want to deliver that to them, but they're also coming for the love story, for the romance, for the passion and the sexiness between these two people. So keeping that front and center is always a priority. And then making sure that all this research informs their world and perspective, but it's not just what we call an info dump. Yeah, the dreaded info dump. <laughs> it's a problem whether you're writing a romance or not, actually. is is The history is so much fun, but it has to be very strictly controlled. So are you planning to write more novels in this series? At the moment, I am not planning to write more Gilded Age Girls Club, but um, I'm definitely exploring more Gilded Age romance novels because I just, I love this time period so much, and I love it for romance so much. And there are also, in the course of my research, so many real women's lives and stories that would make amazing, amazing um, fodder for a romance novel. It's all there. Yeah, I think that this period is often underappreciated. You know, we we think of the big changes um, in women's lives coming in the 1920s and 30s, and especially the 40s with the war. And it's not recognized, I think, how much was going on in the early 20th century with the drive for women's suffrage and things like that. Right. Well, what I've discovered in a lot of my research is that women were always doing amazing things and agitating for change and pushing the boundaries. And in any age, you will find these women. And I think one of the great purposes of historical romance is that it gives us a way to unearth these stories and present them to the world today because we don't get it anywhere else. So what would you like readers to take away from An Heiress to Remember and the Gilded Age Girls Club books more generally? I would love readers to come away with this sense of joy and satisfaction because they read a really fun, sexy novel that, you know, has this great love story. But I also want them to come away um, with this awareness of what a rich history women have and realize this connection we have um, with these historical women. And I think, you know, readers should come away a little pissed off at um, how the world treats women and women's things. But I also want them to come away hopeful that in sticking together and helping each other, we can advocate for these changes that would lead us all to happy ever after. And let's all have pockets in our dresses. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So what about you? Are you already working on something new? I am. Um, I can't say anything about it yet, but it definitely picks up on a lot of the themes in this series. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. I appreciate it. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Maya Rodale about her latest historical romance, An Heiress to Remember. Find out more about her at www.mayarodale.com. 
If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creative community. As NBN listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do slash nbn slash join. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histvic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews, and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.